We're going to be reading Judges tonight. Um, So chapter 1, verse 1 to 11. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah then said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We in turn will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and found and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem also and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. After that, Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites, living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. They advanced against the Canaanites living in Hebron, formerly called Kiriath Arba, and defeated Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai. From there they advanced against the people living in Debir, formerly called Kiriath Sefer. And then we'll skip on to uh, verse 27 to 36. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Ibliam, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Giza, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahalol. So these Canaanites lived among them, but Zebulun did subject them to forced labor. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Aksib or Helbar or Aphek or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land because they did not drive them out. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became, for, became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. And the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Ijalon, and Shalbim. But when the power of the tribes of Joseph increased, they too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion Pass to Selah and beyond. And then going to chapter 2, verse 6 to 19. Um, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, 
the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around them, whom they were no longer able to resist. When Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of the raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. When the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflict them. But when the judge died, the people returned to to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. And then chapter 3, verse 5 to 6. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And thank you, Abby, for a tough reading. Uh, This week, the church was robbed. I'm not kidding. Uh, They stole two things, Don McSkimming's wallet and the grape juice we use for communion. Interesting taste. I'm not sure how long that had been in the fridge. Uh, Anyway, it it happened during the day, and so we ended up on a wild goose chase through Shenton Park, uh, looking for these two people, uh, just kind of running uh, crazily through the streets and laneways, uh, trying to find them. Uh, And eventually, uh, Don actually managed to corner uh, one of them into into the the kind of corner of a set of flats, and he was kind of shepherding them in like this, and I was was thinking, where have I seen Don do that before? Uh, It's exactly what he does with the kids at creche, just kind of get get back in there. Uh, a whole new meaning to equipped for service. <laughs> uh, anyway, we didn't, we didn't get the wallet back. Uh, but when the pr- police arrived, all of a sudden the scene became very sober. Because it was two women. And all of a sudden they were in handcuffs. <laughs> you just couldn't help but wonder, where did it go wrong? At some point, they were just two little girls, somebody's daughter. And here they are robbing a church, and they had outstanding warrants, and then they found drugs in their bags. And you just think, where did it all go so wrong? Where did it go wrong? Uh, We would do well to pray for those two women uh, this week. Now that is a raw story, and I hope uh, you can feel the emotion of it. It's hard to feel it. Uh, But tonight, as we start a new series, 
uh, in the book of Judges, those first few chapters that we read, they are a story where everything goes wrong. And it's a story that hints to us where it might go wrong for us as well. Several times in the Old Testament, God calls Israel his son. And again and again, this book of Judges that we're looking at tonight and for the next few weeks will keep asking us, where did it go wrong for God's son? Where has it gone wrong for us? Uh, As we jump in, some context uh, might be helpful. There's, There's a few peculiar things about the book of Judges. It's a book with two introductions. You might have noticed it as we were reading that twice we get a reference to the life and death of Joshua. Uh, we get it once in 1 verse 1 and again in two, uh, chapter 2 verses 6 to 9. And the author actually does that very deliberately uh, because to understand the book of Judges, we have to start by looking backwards. Uh, if you don't know the story, Joshua was one of Israel's heroes And his predecessor, Moses, had led God's people out of slavery in Egypt uh, into this wilderness. And then Joshua's the one uh, tasked with leading these people, God's people, Israel, into the promised land of Canaan. Uh, Joshua was the one that that rallied the troops, that took them across the Jordan River, that, that led them on the fight of their lives to vanquish their enemies, to make Canaan their own. And so as we look backwards from Judges, we see Israel in prime position. They're like the lucky few in in the front of the queue for the grand final this week. Prime position. You can tell I'm salty that I missed out. Uh, And there they are, settled in the promised land, ready to live with God forever. Prime position. And all they need to do is finish the job, drive out the rest of their enemies, set up the rest of their lives. And so two times, in two introductions in these first few chapters of Judges, we get this reminder. And two times, we are left thoroughly disappointed when it all falls apart. It's interesting that in chapter 1, verse 1, Israel asks God for advice. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, they are worshipping a different God entirely. Two introductions... Two ways we see the fall of God's son, Israel. Where did it all go so wrong? Uh, So we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, We're going to look at the two introductions, a little bit about what God does, and then we'll think about what it means for us. The first introduction, uh, from from chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 5, is an introduction about military decline. It's a military decline. Uh, When Israel came into the promised land, one of the things that God made sure Israel knew was they needed to wipe the place clean of everyone else that was there, Uh, which, you know, sounds uh, a tad extreme. Uh, But there were actually some good reasons. Uh, One was that the occupants of the land were genuinely evil, and God actually wanted to judge them, to bring justice to the land. God had been patient with them for years and years and years, but the time had come to do what was right, to punish those who did wrong. And and you can read about that in places like Genesis 15. The second reason, though, that they needed to, to cleanse the place of all the people there is that the nations were going to be a source of temptation. 
So if you've got a Bible, uh, come with me to Exodus chapter 23, verse 31. Uh, Towards the start of the Bible, Exodus 23, uh, 31. 23, 31. Halfway through uh, verse 30. Did I say 21 or 31? I meant 31. Uh, Halfway through 31, God says this. I will give into your hands the people who live in the lands, and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land, or they will cause you to sin against me, because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Uh, See, the Canaanite tribes who lived in the land worshipped foreign gods. Uh, Sometimes they sacrificed their children. They kept prostitutes in their temple. They had no care for the poor or the needy in their religion. And God knew if they were allowed to stick around, that Israel would get sucked into it all. And so God told them, you've got to protect yourselves. You've got to fight. Otherwise, instead of bringing justice, you will become unjust, just like them. And so that's what we find uh, back in Judges in chapter 1. Flip back to Judges. Uh, This is what verse 1 of the first chapter says. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. Now Judah is one of the southern tribes of Israel. And so God decides to send them out first. And at first glance, it's a big success. You know, there's some teamwork in in verse 3. Judah and Simeon, brothers working together, brothers in arms. In verse 4, they strike down 10,000 men. In verse 8, they capture Jerusalem, the future capital of Israel. Verse 10, they advanced. Verse 11, they advanced again. Verse 17, they're pretty creative. They destroy a city and they call it, destroy it. It's all going very well after Joshua. And it's not just statistics either. Uh, like all good authors, you know, the writer, he, he knows his audience. Uh, verses 6 and 7, we get a tale for teenage boys. It's pretty gruesome. Uh, there's this guy, Adonai Bezek. He's been going around cutting off uh, big toes and big thumbs of 70 kings. And then Israel pays him back. And this guy's not annoyed. He recognises it. It's justice. God has caught me out, he says. Uh, not just gruesome, though. Uh, in, in 12 to 15, we get a tale of romance. There's still a bit of blood, but it, but it is romantic. Verse 12, there's, there's this guy, Caleb, and, and he realises his daughter, Aksa, needs a husband. And it can't just be anyone. It needs to be someone who trusts the Lord, who, 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 who puts all their, their trust and hope in him. And so he comes up with this test. Uh, whoever can go out and battle and show their courage and faith in God, they'll be the one that can have my daughter. And so this guy, Othniel, in verse 17, he swoops in, uh, defeats the enemy, wins the girl. Bit of blood, but a bit of romance as well. It all begins so well. And then it all goes downhill. In verse 19, we read that God was with the men of Judah. He had given the land into their hands. But the people of the hill country. They had chariots fitted with iron. It was all a bit hard. You know, never mind that God threw the Egyptians into the sea with their chariots. It was iron. It was really hard. 
And then it kind of tumbles. Uh, verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin, they don't even try. They just decide to live with their enemies instead. Invite them to be their neighbours. In verse 22, it switches from the southern tribes to the northern tribes of Israel. And, and you'd, you'd hope maybe they can do better, but they don't. Verse 22, the, the tribes of Joseph, they let one man and his family live. You know, that's not, that's not awful. But then the idea catches on. Verse 27, Manasseh doesn't drive out anyone. He lets them all live. They can all hang out. Ah, but it's okay. You know, he, he turns them into slaves. What could go wrong? But then as we head further north, verse 29, the tribe of Ephraim does the same thing. And then verse 30, Zebulun does the same thing. And 31, Asher does it. And 33, Naphtali does it. All the tribes of Israel. They stop doing any driving out. They invite them all in. And so then you come to verse 34. And it's time for the tribe of Dan to take up their place in the land. And the Amorites don't let them. They've watched what is happening, that they know Israel has become complacent and comfortable. And so actually Dan never really gets to live in the promised land. Israel gave an inch. The Amorites took a mile. It started so well. Who, who God will go up to fight first? But now they've become disobedient, unfaithful, opportunistic, Complacement. And now their unjust enemies are their nearest neighbours. It's a tragic military decline. In chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 5, we get God's verdict on what they've done. And the verdict comes from an angel from Gilgal. Now, there's 300 places in these chapters, none of which I can pronounce. Abby did pretty well. So why does it matter if an angel comes from Gilgal? And it probably wouldn't. Except Gilgal is the place where Joshua helped Israel make a covenant to the Lord. Right on the shores of the promised lands. The place they were supposed to be fighting for. And so here is this angel coming from the place where they made promises. And he says at the end of verse 1, or the, the end of verse 1, I said, I will never break covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And now I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares to you. You've let them stay. You've tolerated everything they stand for. You've, you've set a trap for yourselves. And now you're going to become just like them. I told you in Exodus they would be a snare. And now they really will. It's a military decline, and it's not good. It started so well. But then they got a little bit unsure, a little bit complacent, a little bit too comfortable. And the next thing you know, they've fallen into the trap. Now, it might look like they were fighting people, 
but it's also a window into the sin of their hearts that they should have been fighting as well. Because how similar is it to us today? We get a little bit unsure about what's best and what God says. We get a little bit complacent about the things that he's asked us to do. All of a sudden we get pretty comfortable with the way that we've decided to do things. With gossip, a white lie, a few pictures on Instagram. It is a battle narrative, yes, but it's also a story about the power and toxicity of sin in the human heart. Sin is like cancer, working its way through the body. And one cell is all it takes. And here is Israel with one huge tumour, a ticking time bomb living inside of them. But cutting it out was too hard. It's just nicer to leave it, let it be. Welcome it in. It's very easy to let sin in. It's so hard to get it out. One day we're fighting it. The next day we're excusing it. The next week we've forgotten it's wrong. That's the first introduction to where it all went wrong. A military decline. Part two covers the same ground but only deeper. And if the first Uh, introduction was a military decline, then the second is a spiritual descent. In verses 6 to 9, it begins with Joshua again, and then we come to verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2, which are the key verses. It says uh, in chapter 10, uh, verse 10, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. I don't know if you know much about the Baals or or, or the the other foreign gods that the Canaanites worshipped. I think we've got a picture for you up here. There we go, there's an engraving. Uh, Baal himself was said to be the god of the weather. Baals, plural, just would have been the kind of lesser forms of him that people had in their homes or places like that. And one of the things that the Canaanites believed was that good harvests came when Baal spent time in the bedroom with his mistress, a kind of goddess that he had. And there's a couple of ways that the Canaanites could help Baal to do this. In a real crisis, you could sacrifice to him an animal, a child, anything to kind of get his attention, to sway the weather, to help you in your harvest. Or as many Canaanites did, you could show him what you wanted him to do. And so one of the defining features of Baal worship was prostitution in the temple. If the rain came when he spent time with his goddess, you just had to remind him what to do. How convenient. Clearly the Baal, uh, the Baals and, and, and the Ashtoreths and the God that these Canaanites worshipped were nothing like Israel's God. And yet when push came to shove, and with harvests on their way and, and a dinner table that needed to be set and mouths that needed to be fed, guess which God Israel chose? 
And it's the broken relationship that hurt God the most. Because to worship Baal, to entrust your your family's harvest and your livelihood in him, it was to say to the true God, we don't trust you. You can see this in in the doing words, the verbs that that Judges uses. Uh, So 2 verse 11, they served the Baals. 2 verse 12, they forsook the Lord and worshipped other gods. 2 verse 13, they forsook him and served others. Verse 17, they prostituted themselves to other gods. It's uncomfortable to say, but the very nature of prostitution is that there is no relationship. It's a fake encounter comprising of a hollow act contingent exclusively on the right price. And here was Israel with a God who would do anything for them. The God who in 2 verse 12 had rescued their ancestors out of Egypt, who had redeemed them at great personal cost. The God who would spend anything on them. And instead they were spending it all on a fake relationship with someone else's God. Human behaviour is never just an action. Human desire is never just about the individual. Every feeling, every longing, it's either inside or outside of a relationship with God. There will be things in life that we all want, that we all need. And God is not angry that you want security. He's not angry that you want to be loved, that you want to have friendships and and family and people that care about you. He's not angry that you need money, that you want to be uh, happy, that you want to be successful. But he is angry and heartbroken that we want all of that without any reference to him. The Canaanites had a God for agriculture, a God for fertility, a God for business, a God for love. And our culture has ways of seeking those things as well. They might not be gods in the religious sense, but we do follow them. We almost worship them. It's a dark, dark spiritual descent. Where did it all go wrong? And it's worth seeing that God is angry, verse 14. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them, and they were in great distress. Only one chapter before, God had said, I have delivered them into your hands. Now he says, I have sold you into theirs. It is a crushing day for Israel. How they they must have wished they could just start it all again. 
Two introductions. A military decline. A spiritual descent. They've abandoned God and now it seems he has abandoned them. But how does God respond? Our last point is that God offers a gracious deliverance. A gracious deliverance. Uh, The Hebrew word for distress in verse 15 is only used three times in the Old Testament. And every time it's a distress and a groaning that God hears and that God never ignores. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 16. It says in verse 16, The Lord raised up judges who saved the people out of the hands of these raiders. Ironically, abandoned by Baal. Attacked by the ones they let stay, the ones they said could be neighbours. Saved by the grace of God. Isn't he kind? Uh, What follows in verse 17 to 19, however, is a dark preview of the whole rest of the book of Judges. Uh, It happens in in five or six stages. Stage one, Israel abandons God. We've seen that. Stage two, Israel is attacked by their neighbours. We've seen that. Stage three, Israel groans in distress. Stage four, God hears them, sends a judge to rescue them. Stage five, the judge dies. And Israel does even worse than before. Verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. Reminds me of every episode ever of Bondi Rescue. Person rescued. Person goes back in the sea. Person rescued again. The next episode, exactly the same. And I don't know about you, but it also feels like my battle with sin every day. And only a loving God, a kind, generous, gracious God, would keep sending a saviour for someone like me. But how long can God keep it up? How long can God keep bailing out his problem children? Verse 20. Therefore the Lord was angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and to see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. Uh, It's a simple test. Will Israel obey? One last chance. And there's something else happening here as well. It's a little bit harder to spot. But in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, God says something kind of obscure. He says he's leaving the nations to test the generations of Israelites who hadn't experienced warfare. It's kind of an odd thing to include in that section. And yet I think it's another hint at God's grace. 
Because he's saying, I'm, I'm, leaving, I'm leaving these people here. I'm leaving you in a kind of distress to give you another chance to trust in me, to see my power in battle, to see the deliverance and grace that I can give. This Israel that has declined and descended and kind of spiralled out of control like a helicopter shot down in war. This Israel that has refused to deal with the Canaanites or their foreign gods or their idols or their own sin or their complacency or their comfort with disobedience. Here is God once more. Come and see what I can do for you. Make a great story, wouldn't it? They came and saw. And instead we get verses 5 and 6 in chapter 3. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Verse 5, military decline. Verse 6, spiritual descent. A gracious deliverance completely ignored. Decline, descent, deliverance, darkness. If you remember anything here tonight, remember this. It's very easy to abandon God. It's very easy for it all to go so, so wrong. These chapters are a tale of sin at its most basic. Sin at its entry level. The human heart at its most normal. And the sadness of it all at its most obvious. Descent decline. Deliverance darkness. Uh, One last story before we close. Uh, On my wedding day, it was hot, somewhere in the high 30s. Pre-COVID, church was packed, just human bodies kind of emanating heat into the air, and I had the presence of mind to wear a dark black suit. But why do you wear a black suit when you get married? It's so that the girl in white stands out to everyone in the room. Also sweat patches, that was a big problem. Uh, but mostly about the girl. The book of Judges paints a dark portrait of human sin. It betrays its toxic power, the way it lulls us into complacency and comfort with our misdeeds. Judges betrays the darkness of our failed relationship with God, our prostitution to other gods and means and ways to give us what we want what we need. It's a dark, black book. And I hope you're ready over the next six or seven weeks to be shocked at how dark it can be. But we need to read it because against the darkness of our sin, how brightly does the white light of Jesus shine? One last judge, one last saviour, one who came not to defeat the powers of flesh and blood, 
human enemies, but to defeat the power of our sin. And in our groan and in our distress, who better to turn to than him? The Israelites failed to listen to their judge. I hope you're listening to Jesus. In Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and, and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. God's problem children. Heirs to all that is his. Amen.